Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of eSharp magazine. Go to eSharp.eu for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson. I'm in conversation with Professor Annan Menon. Anna Menon is director of the UK in a Changing Europe uh, project based at King's College London. Annan, I'd like this to be uh, on the broad theme of what has the UK ever done to the, to the European Union? And the first of a, a series of podcasts I'd like to do with experts and personalities, and you're certainly an expert, and you've now become a personality. Uh, obviously, we can't cover everything in, in the time allotted to us, but let's try and make a stab at least in three broad areas, and you give me your views about whether the, the claims for or against Britain's contributions to the European Union in these areas are, are exaggerated or totally accurate. So we're going to try and cover the single market, enlargement and broadly speaking foreign policies. So single market, a lot of people say that is really a, a UK invention or UK creation certainly, ironically a UK Conservative Party creation. To what extent is that? does that stand up to, to, to reality? To some extent I'd say. Uh, firstly, thanks for having me on Paul. Uh, remember that one of the curious things about the single market was that the undertaking managed to unite three unlikely bedfellows in Francois Mitterrand, Helmut Kohl and Margaret Thatcher. Uh, and, you know, you needed that impulsion from the big member states who shared a common assessment of the fact that Europe was losing out in a global economic battle to the giant, to Jap Japan, pardon me, yeah. and to the United States. Uh, I suppose the, the argument about how influential the Brits were comes after the project was launched. That is to say, I lost count of the number of uh, French people in the 1990s who would say to me, sort of, appalled that the Brits had created a Europe Anglo-Saxon and that the right. single market wasn't the social market economy that Mitterrand had dreamt of but was something far closer to a conservative market that Margaret Thatcher had spoken about. But I think the project itself was born out of collaboration and how it was implemented I think bore an unmistakable British stamp. Okay and and the the nomination obviously of the of the British commissioner Arthur Coffield Lord Coffield was was very much part of that right he came with very low expect people had very low expectation like many com commissioners coming to Brussels for the first time rather than unknown quantity even an unknown quantity back in in UK politics never mind in Brussels politics but he's quickly sort of uh, got the bit between his teeth didn't he? and and took and took the project very seriously absolutely and i think in a sense being dull and dry and technical <laughs> were his greatest assets because uh, when that white paper came out right. on the single market I think virtually no one understood its significance in terms of the way it would open up the European market. It was just a series of technical measures, right. uh, the political implications of which were completely hidden from view. And it was a, it was just a, a boring white paper of a few pages. It was actually it contained three hundred proposals, if I yeah. correctly, uh, which would be sta staggered over time during the course of the of the Delors Commission. Okay, so so looking back, what uh, how to what extent has a single market been the success that a lot of pro-Europeans claim it is? It is. Well, it's been a success in some areas more than others. There are still holes in the area of services, for instance. But I think. Uh, Particularly given all that the European Union has been through in the last decade or so, the fact that the single market has weathered the storm of the financial crisis without member states turning their backs on it has been a real, I think, triumph that has been understated on all sides. Uh, but, you know, there is work still to be done, and I think the limitations of the single market can be seen in the fact that to a significant extent you still have 28 national economies in Europe, mm. albeit that the edges of those economies have been rubbed away via initiatives like the customs union and the single market. But there's a ways to go before we create a European economy that is recognisably so from the data. 
And is it fair to say it's been a, a qualified success in the area of goods, but when it comes to services, the record is much more nuanced? It is nuanced, but again, it depends what you compare it to. Compared to any other region in the world, European services are pretty integrated, but okay. compared to the rest of the single market, they're not. So there is still work to be done on that. Uh, we saw the services directive, the so-called Balkenstein yeah. directive of a few years ago, and its fate. So, you know, it is a very difficult area politically to deal with because opening up services is a very intrusive form of free trade. Okay. Well, let's move on then to uh, rapidly to enlargement. The, the, the as you know better than I do, the the debate for a while back in the nineties was. Um, actually a choice actually at the time between widening or deepening um, uh, in other words more members coming in or keeping people new members out but then making the integration pro uh, process more, more more deep more profound and then at some point in the process maybe you'll, you'll clarify for me and the listeners it became widening and deepening not a, not a, like a, a mutually incompatible choice um, and again what was the in your, from your point of view what was the UK's role in our contribution to the so-called enlargement process well, the UK has always been uh, a staunch proponent of enlargement. There are doubtless those in the UK who see enlargement simply as a way of watering down the European project. Yeah. Uh, there are equally, I think, to be fair, those in the United Kingdom who have supported enlargement because they see the geopolitical value of it. I think it is absolutely the case, and we're going to talk about foreign policy in a minute, that the Brits have tended to look at uh, geopolitics, at strategy, at security, more than some member states. And I think there was an understanding that one of the ways of dealing with potential instability on the frontiers of the European Union was via a process of enlargement. That being said, there were always battles about what this would mean institutionally. I'm just about old enough to think back to the Ionina compromise about right. votes in the council and so on. Right. Uh, we haven't wanted to, to water down our own influence, but uh, there has been a, a, a healthy tension between uh, two extremes in that debate, and I think actually enlargement does stand as a, as, as, a, as a triumph for the European Union and a triumph in which the Brits have played a not insignificant part. But you, having said that, I mean, you'll know that a lot of people, especially in Brussels, here in Brussels, are, are very still hard almost hold a grudge against the UK and it's very, certainly very suspicious of, of the UK motives. You touched on it briefly just now. Nonetheless, it was a kind of not a rather unsubtle attempt, according to critics, by the UK to, to undermine Europe, make it less strong. Possibly. I'm sure, I mean, this is absolutely the case that there were some in the UK who saw it in that way. I'm not sure the, rec the historical record shows that that is ultimately what has happened and I'm not sure that some of the more egregious examples of things going wrong so the rushed accession of Romania and particularly Bulgaria right. the accession of Cyprus weren't because of UK pushing because of specific factors at the time uh, so mistakes have been made in the enlargement process I'm not denying that for a moment but I don't think overall the record is one of enlargement necessarily diluting because you say it's a success I mean it's now quite a unfashionable thing to say that enlargement was a success given that the rule of law debate in certain countries is now very much uh, top of the agenda. I suppose so. I mean, what you need to do then is consider the counterfactual. Uh, it is, I think, a remarkable achievement that the transition of the central and eastern parts of this continent from communism to liberal democracy passed off without conflict or serious antagonism. Uh, and I think that is due in a sig insignificant part to the enlargement process and the carrots that the European Union managed to hold out in return for adaptation. But it's equally true 
that the criteria used for enlargement were somewhat narrow and rather economic in nature and could have been more linked to politics and so on. But equally what I would say is, and this is a fundamental issue the EU has to wrestle with, is the European Union has far more influence over what happens in states that want to be members than it seems to have in states that actually are members. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it is very hard to uh, legislate against the future in that sense. We don't know what countries are going to do when they come in, and maybe the European Union needs to think about firming up its procedures to take action against states within its own boundaries that seem to challenge its values. Okay, well, so if we, for the sake of argument, uh, accept your argument that it's been a, a success, not even a qualified success, but by and large a success enlargement, again, pressing you a bit on, on the history of this, uh, to the extent you can pinpoint it, what was the, the specific uh, contributional role of the UK at the time to, to cha- quote-unquote champion enlargement? Well, I would maintain, and I know there are people who would argue this, that actually for some in Britain this was just a matter of principle. And I would refer, perhaps surprisingly, everyone who's listening to this, to Margaret Thatcher's Bruges speech of 1988 at the College of Europe. I mean, that is widely spoken about as the start of Euroscepticism. It also lays out a very British vision of the future of the European Union. And interestingly enough, what Prime Minister Thatcher did in that speech was say, I want three things. I want a single market. I want some cooperation on defence, and I want enlargement. There's a very moving passage in that speech where she talks about the great cities of uh, Budapest, Mm. Prague, European cities too. So I think part of this was a vision of reuniting the continent. And of course, I think Mrs Thatcher saw that very much in the context of global politics, and particularly the tail end of the Cold War. Okay. Well, global politics, tail end of the Cold War geopolitics uh, so far and past. So you seem to have been making a very bad job so far, being particularly critical of the UK's contribution to the European Union. Let's try, we could be more critical when it comes to foreign policy uh, and defence, if you like. So um, again, the, the basic fundamental question to kick off this part of the conversation, the UK's contribution to the European Union's uh, creation of a foreign policy. Well, I mean, if we can start with, with defence, because I mean, that's the easiest one to talk about, I think. Uh, you know, the Brits and the French were responsible for the creation of ESDP, which became CSDP. The problem is the Brits then got fed up with it a few years later uh, and turned their backs on it and failed to contribute to it as much as perhaps they might have done. I think lots of things happened between the launch at St Malo in December 1998. With Blair as Prime Minister. With Blair as Prime Minister pushing for better European capabilities. I think the calculation in London was... A degree of frustration with other member states for not contributing enough to security, and a perhaps naive belief that if you dress defense, if you wrap defense spending up in a European flag, it will be politically more acceptable in some parts of Europe. Uh, I think if you ask mandarins in Britain, they will say that that particular calculation was off. It hasn't worked. But equally, I think after Iraq and with British involvement in Afghanistan, the Brits themselves didn't really contribute troops to ESDP missions to the extent perhaps that people might have expected them to. Okay. Maybe people maybe don't understand, maybe non-experts listening to this, what these what ESDP is all about and what are these missions that you're talking about? Well, it's about several things. It's partly about uh, efficiency. It's partly about trying to tackle the inefficiencies that come from having 28 defence policies uh, sometimes in competition with each other, if you take the arms industries, for instance. So it's partly about benefiting from economies of scale, allowing states to do things collaboratively rather than do things themselves. But it's also about creating a European capacity to intervene militarily where they see fit. Uh, uh, On neither of those fronts has ESDP, or CSDP now, forgive me, progressed as fast as I think many people would have hoped. 
I'm not sure you can hold the Brits uniquely responsible for that, though I would say, as I said before, that we, we, we didn't step up to the plate as much as perhaps we might have done when it came to troop deployments. Would the UK have this view that there was, there was always a risk maybe of, of mission creep and there'd be incremental encroachment on, on, on areas of, of, of responsibility of NATO? Or is that a dumb question? Uh, there was always that tension. I think those tensions were eased somewhat when the US administration following Iraq seemed to lose its suspicions of CSDP as something that would duplicate NATO and realise that it was something that would probably strengthen NATO. Uh, I think we've always had a problem in the UK in the, when things get politicised. So on occasion ridiculous arguments about us having a European army have got in the way of sensible collaboration. Mm. Uh, the fact that the European Defence Agency had the word European in it meant that David Cameron's government pursued some rather weird policies towards it mm. in terms of freezing its budget, whereas the EDA, for a country like Britain, strengthening the European Defence Agency, I would have thought would be a no-brainer because we have the defence industry that is perhaps best placed to benefit from a strong European Defence Agency. Right. Well, in these broad three areas, if I understand and hear what you're saying, single market enlargement and foreign policy, in broad, in broad terms, the UK's contribution to the EU has been relatively positive. So why, where does this well-established view come from, that the, the UK is a reluctant member of the European Union, is an awkward member of the European Union? Where, where are the areas where you, one can point the finger at the UK and say, you're not particularly a team player? It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think without doubt we have been reluctant members of the European Union, if you gauge it in terms of public attitudes or the attitudes of many of our politicians. Whether or not we've been awkward is a more interesting question, because actually, yes, the UK has always been willing to fight its corner. Uh, you can think about the big battles that Mrs Thatcher had over the rebate in the early 1980s, you can think about the arguments we had over the euro, but ultimately, in all those things, we found an equitable outcome. We found a compromise, so we found the opt-out from monetary union, we found the budgetary rebate yeah. uh, solution. Um, Schengen and all those kind yeah, of things. Yeah, I mean, we have at no point sort of uh, taken our bat and ball home, as you know, notably the French did in 1965 with the empty, empty chair crisis. We always remain engaged. The one exception to that was a particularly sad period of our membership when uh, John Major, under massive pressure from the Eurosceptics in his party, launched the ill-fated policy of non-cooperation in Europe, or PONTS to its friends, uh, whereby the Brits in the council, and this was absolutely bizarre, were forced to sit there and say no, even to measures that British administrations have spent a couple of years working assiduously to get into the council and to get into EU legislation. I mean, that turned out to be relatively short-lived and massively unsuccessful. Why was it unsuccessful? Why did it not work? Well, it... Uh, because in a sense it was linkage politics, wasn't it? This was all about BSE. This was all about mad stamping cow our, disease. Yeah, right, this right. was all about mad cow disease. It was all about stamping our foot. Right. Ultimately, EU processes. And I, I think you know the British had a point that some of the slowness on the part of the EU to let British beef back in was political as much as anything else. Right. Uh, but I don't think the policy of non-cooperation in Europe had any meaningful impact, apart from embarrassing our permanent representative in Brussels, who's written about it quite eloquently subsequently. <laughs> okay, well, let's try and bring this now to, to, the, to the present day. And let's assume for the sake of argument, my friend, that, that, that the UK will leave the European Union in the next, in the next few months under whatever circumstances uh, which will dictate that departure. Um, and we're, we're no longer at the, at the various uh, negotiating tables. What do you think will happen in terms of... Um, the future of the European project will, you know, a lot of people are saying, as you know, that with the Brits gone, these pesky, d difficult, uh, 
awkward Brits will be able to do far more in, in whatever certain areas. Do you go along with that? That there'll not, maybe not a big flurry of activity, but bit by bit there'll be a new strategic direction of the, of the European project on the back of the UK's departure. Well, let me say to start with, and I feel obliged to say that if Britain leaves in the next few months, we are leaving with no deal. So actually, that's a very disruptive. There is no, right. there is no practical way I can see us leaving by the 31st of October with a deal if only because there isn't time to pass the domestic legislation to do so. So we're talking about no deal, which will be disruptive. Right. Uh, but leave that to one side, because that w- that'll be a rocky yeah. uh, way to do it. Uh, there are ways to do Brexit in a more orderly fashion. But I think what is interesting then is that there were two extremes of thought about Brexit, weren't there? From the Eurosceptic side, it would be we would be the first of many, this would be a domino effect. And on the other side, once the Brits are out, we can move forward seamlessly towards our federal destiny. And I think both are wrong. Uh, and both are misplaced. I mean, let me deal with the second one first, because that's the one you asked about directly. Uh, the EU faces a number of internal crises. I mean, you can you can identify three big ones, which is the need to reform the Eurozone before the next crisis, right. uh, the need to be able to address, address migration in an effective and equitable manner, uh, and finally, we referred to this earlier, the kind of values division right. that is springing up between East and West. And what yeah. is interesting about those is that the e- the UK is neither the reason for those crises, nor has it been the veto player preventing resolution of any of them. So in that sense, Britain being round the table or not round the table is not going to Make affect the EU's right. ability to address them, I don't think. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, the, the UK's absence will have an impact on the politics of the Eurozone. You only have to talk to... Uh, Swedish policymakers to understand just how furious they are at being left in the lurch as they see it by the Brits as, as, a, as, the, as a non-euro as a member, member state. Right. Uh, but I think in terms of the structural crises the EU faces, not having the UK around the table is not necessarily going to make much in the way of a material difference. Okay, well maybe, maybe in, in going back to things like the single market actually and, and its broader ramifications, i.e. regulation and uh, and even trade policy, frankly, there is a concern, some might say it's, a, it's an opportunity, uh, actually for the European Union to become, quote-unquote, more protectionist uh, in, in global trade terms. Others say, well, that, um, that, is, a, that is a threat, not, a, not an opportunity, and they are concerned that without the kind of strong UK voice championing uh, free trade, single market, all that kind of stuff, is going to be a real problem for the European Union. What do you think about that? Well, firstly... It takes two to tango, and actually, if you want to do free trade, you need to have partners willing to do it with you, and that is a problem globally now, is that you know countries like America seem to be turning their backs on free trade, which makes it harder to achieve. Uh, secondly, that same debate is happening within the European Union, uh, where there are forces, and they're not limited to the United Kingdom, that are slightly antithetical to traditional models of globalisation. Uh, we, of course, are amongst them now. So whether or not yeah. you know, we would have continued being an ardent proponent of free trade, I think, is very much open to question. Uh, so it is very, very hard to answer that question. That's what my blathering has meant. Uh, <laughs> it, I mean, it, it is very, very hard to tell. I mean, you, know, you have a curious situation in the United Kingdom at the moment where a lot of politicians are going around talking about global Britain and how Brexit means we can go and be a buccaneering, swashbuckling, global trading nation. A lot of Leave voters seem to vote Leave because they're slightly suspicious of those kinds of global links. Mm. And how that washes out over the next five years, it's just virtually impossible to predict. Okay. Well, I have many more questions for you, Anna, but we have to leave it there. Thank you very much for your time. Absolute pleasure, Paul.